This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's going on, my friends? Before we get to the episode, I am so pumped to welcome Abner Mares to the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Abner is a world champion boxer, Olympian, sports commentator, but the title that he's most proud of is being a dad to two little girls. On Blue Wire's new podcast called On the Hook with Abner Mares, we'll hear from Abner, his family, fellow athletes, and other people who made him the boxer and the man that he is today. They'll chat about topics like Abner's journey from being a kid on the streets to becoming a boxing champ, as well as sports, music, culture, and family life. You can listen to On the Hook with Abner Mars wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Episodes in English are out on Tuesdays, and episodes in Spanish are out on Wednesdays. Now hit my music. It's Chrysomania, brother. That's a great question. Look at you, man. Oh, That's a powerful question. <laughs> Woo! This is the Chris Van Vliet Show. Chris Van Vliet Show. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Van Vliet! Yeah, welcome back to another audio adventure on the Chris Van Vliet Show. This episode is brought to you by Indeed and Bet Online. And for those of you keeping track at home, this is my fourth interview with Chris Jericho. He's just so great to sit down with. If we take a look here, the first one was before a Fozzie concert in 2013. Then we did one on the Fozzie tour bus, April 2018. One in the backseat of his car a few days after he signed with AEW. That was January 2019. And now here we go. This one, number four. So if you've watched all of them or listened to all of them, thank you. That's uh, amazing. And if this is your first of the four, I appreciate you being here. Snap a screenshot, tag me on Instagram so I can say hi and share it. I'm at Chris Van Vliet. Tag Jericho as well. On Instagram, he is at Chris Jericho Fozzie. And while you're at it, please make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast on whatever podcast platform that you're listening right now. And if it happens to be Apple Podcasts, please take a few seconds out of your day right now to leave a review. It doesn't need to be long. It can be short. It can be simple. It can literally just be an emoji, but anything helps. It's the biggest thing that we can do to keep the show growing. And I'm going to keep reading one out on every single episode till we get to that goal of 2,000 reviews before my birthday, which is May 19th. We're talking about May 19th, 2021. So we've got some time here. This one from Golden Jones says, Nobody is touching Chris. Chris, you're on another level. There's nobody doing this the way that you do it at the level you're doing it. Wow. Never change, brother. 
Evolve as much as ever, but never leave wrestling behind. You are a gem in this community. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you, Golden Jones. I'm, I mean, the reality is I'm just a wrestling fan like you are or like anybody who's listening to this is. So I'm just, look, I'm fascinated by what makes great people great. And I just, I love hearing that other people enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoy having them. Like this one with Chris Jericho. And he just celebrated 30 years in the wrestling business, which is amazing. Although we talk about here how he almost left 15 years ago. He almost left the wrestling business in 2005. So we, we get into why that was the case. I think we're all really glad that he didn't. But we look back at his 30 years in wrestling, uh, beginning with his first match with Lance Storm. And even his life before that, growing up with a famous father in Ted Irvine, who played for a lot of different NHL teams, but he's best known for his time with the New York Rangers. We talk about the influence that his dad had on his life and you know on his career as well. The many different faces and gimmicks of Chris Jericho, the, the many different hairstyles and facial hairstyles as well. We talk about why he thought that a why he thought that AEW was the right fit for him and very interesting that he talked about who the original members of the inner circle were supposed to be. Hmm. Yeah. Let's dive right into it. Here we go. It's Chris Jericho. Well, here we go. Excited to be chatting with the one and only Chris Jericho. And, you know, Chris, every interview we've done has always been in such a, an interesting location. You know, first it was before Fozzie concert. Then it was on the tour bus. Then we were in the back seat of your car. Here we are just having just a normal conversation now. Were, the, were, the, were those interviews or are we dating? Oh, that's true. <laughs> this is date number backstage, four now. Backstage <laughs> in the back seat of a car. <laughs> Congratulations on 30 years. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, it's been, um, it's been uh, pretty cool, a pretty cool week. When I think of um, you know something as as monumental as thirty years, what do you do to, to prepare for that, and how how to um, you know kind of uh, market and, and and celebrate it? So I think we did a pretty good job. I remember Metallica's thirtieth anniversary show; they did four shows at the at the um, at the Fillmore in San Diego, San Francisco, and they did like uh, twenty songs each set, and they were all different from the last. They had all their guest stars and. Um, you know, some of their heroes were there. It was really, really cool. So when this was coming up, I said, what can I do? So we're doing the book, The Complete List of Jericho. We're doing the big show, Jericho 30 Celebration. And I did three podcasts uh, with Lance Storm, two of them watching along with our first couple matches. And I'm going to do another one with my dad, just talking about those early years. So I think I was able to kind of encapsulate everything and celebrate it all um, to where I feel good about it. So this is how it's being celebrated kind of in the public eye. Are, are you doing anything in your personal life to celebrate this? Not really. I mean, you know, how arrogant would I be to throw a party for myself for my 30th anniversary? So the thing is, too, that's very funny is October 2nd, 1990 was my first match. But November 9th, 1970 is, is was my birthday. So I'll be 50 next month. So that's going to be the big party. This is more of just a professional celebration. Um, and trying to do the most that I can to, to, to make it special because it is special. I mean, there's not a lot of guys um, uh, 
who have been able to have the longevity that I've had, especially kind of still at the top of their game. And, um, and there's nobody else that I, to my knowledge, ever with my longevity that's kept a list of every single match they've ever had. And that's kind of what the, the book is based on. I mean, I have it right here just because we've been dealing with it for the last few days, but this is basically every match that I've ever had. You can kind of see it all written yeah. down there. Oh my gosh. You know, there's 2,700 odd uh, matches and this one right here, which you're reading at the top of that, um, that was written 30 years ago on this exact piece of paper. Number wow. one, Lance Storm, Pinocchio, Alberta. So 30 years ago, I wrote this down and I've kept this kind of log ever since. So, um, I, I, I wanted to do something with it. I thought, what a great, like to complete this to Jericho, put it out as a, as a total kind of a volume. Uh, and if you are interested in that sort of thing, it's got every match I've ever had, uh, where it was, who it was against, what the finish was, what my star rating for it was, how much money I made for it in the early days, and then a bunch of pictures and top 10 lists and, and graphs and info and all that sort of stuff. So it very much is like um, there's a rush book behind me, if you can see it, that I documents know. every gig that they ever had. So you got to be a real fan to, to want to look at it. But I, I think it's not just for fans of Chris Jericho, it's for fans of pro wrestling. Because once again, it's a 30-year span in this business and how much has changed over the years. And I just think it's a real interesting piece that, that fans will really appreciate and enjoy. A real how cool souvenir. In, how many matches in total is it? Well, my book is different from... So I got Alex Marvez involved. And Alex is very much a stickler for detail, which is why I got him involved. So he kind of went and cross-referenced the book. And, and I, I wasn't counting Battle Royals, but I was counting Royal Rumbles. And he's like, we shouldn't count one without the other. So we kind of... There, some were added. Some were kind of subtracted. Um especially for the last few years, we relied a lot on cage side seats, uh, which kind of helped because I didn't, I didn't keep as thorough of a record over the past few years knowing that cage side seats exists. So they had added some matches that didn't happen, all that sort of stuff. But the way that we have it now is it goes from October 2nd, 1990 to October 7th, 2020, which is this Wednesday for the Jericho Hager, uh, Sir Luther match. And that'll be 2,721 matches all documented <laughs> in this book. <laughs> now, I think it'd be difficult to tell, you know, to ask what your favorite match is, but I'm interested to know of those matches, which one has meant the most to you? Like you said, Chris, that's hard. That's a hard question because there's so many of them that, that have meant a lot. You can go through the different eras. And I mean, the one that used to come to mind right off the bat was the ladder match I had with Shawn Michaels in, in 2008 in Portland. And the reason for that, not only was it a great ladder match, but it also, the whole story behind it was that it was the culmination of a seven-month angle that was supposed to be less than a month. It was supposed to be just the one and done, and we extended it for seven months to the point where it became kind of the focus of the show to where the world title was even at stake for it. So that one always meant a lot to me. Um, the, the, the Tokyo Dome match with Kenny Omega uh, in 2018 was huge because that's what made me fall in love with wrestling again. It made me realize, like, holy shit, this is what wrestling is. There's no uh, handcuffs or, or chains involved. Pure creative freedom. And then I think, you know, some of those AEW matches, I, I think the the match with uh, with Cody was huge because it was a great story. That we, It was the first kind of story that I had written on by myself. I mean, with Cody and, and Tony Khan's help, but 
basically it was, you know, the first time I'd had my own storyline that didn't have to be approved and, you know, cut up and changed and moved and all that sort of stuff. I think the match with Moxley was huge right before the, the, the Corona happened. Um, so there's a lot of those. The one with Ultimo Dragon, 1995, the Sumo Arena match. That's the, the match that got me my job in ECW and WCW. So there's, there's quite a few kind of signposts along the road. But yeah. just to choose one is, is very difficult. I probably, I know in this book, I, I put my top 10 matches. And then as soon as I finished my top 10, I was like, oh, fuck, I got to put the Tanahashi match in. That was great, too. So it was became top 11 matches. It's my book, so I can do what I want. But that's the thing. The more you think about it, the more it comes into your mind. So you just got to kind of set it at 10 or 11 and just leave it at that. You know, you had a few hiatuses uh, over the last 30 years. Was there ever a point where you were like, you know, I'm, I'm just going to step away from wrestling. I'm going to focus on acting, focus on my band. And, you know, what I did in wrestling can kind of stay as it was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, 2005, SummerSlam with John Cena, like that was, I wasn't done, done, but I was mentally done and burned out. And I walked away and um, my contract was up. There was no contract negotiations. I, I said, to them, don't even give me a figure because I felt they were going to give me a downgrade in pay just from the way that, my career was at the time I knew it was, it was, it was, it was time to get away. So that's why I left the business for two and a half years, Chris. I think people forget that. And uh, when I came back in 2007, it was uh, with a completely different mindset because I had done a lot of acting, uh, a lot of training, studying. And that's where the whole, you know, suit and tie guy Jericho came in where it was just completely dropped in and completely committed to this character. And that's, you know, kind of one of the last guys that was getting in fights on the streets with fans because people were so, um, invested and just hated this character. And that's directly because of my work with the Groundlings and studying acting with Kirk Boltz in LA. And um, Kirk Boltz is most famously known as Marvin Nash from Reservoir Dogs, who gets his ear cut off. Yeah. Um, so I really studied and learned. And so when I came back to wrestling, that's when I really became the Chris Jericho that you know, Chris Jericho that you know uh, and love or hate today. Because that's when I think I finally reached my full potential in the ring as a worker, as a character. And, dude, that was 18 years in. So it goes to show you really don't know until until you get it. That's how long it took me to get it. Ever since then, I've been top level. Um, and then, you know, 2015, I had gone for a while, and I decided I didn't really want to deal with the rigmarole of being on TV. So I asked Vince if I could just do house shows. He said yes. So I worked 60 shows that year, 60 house shows. Uh, and then I was going to think about winding down, but then I, I did. A, I was going to sign for a three-month thing in 2016 that ended up going a year and a half because I had so much fun with Kevin Owens. And then I walked away from that because it was time to go into Fozzie. And then the New Japan Kenny Omega match came up. And then, it, you know, it's like the cliche, as soon as, you, as soon as you leave, they draw you back in. But it wasn't hard to draw me back in. I was just looking for something different. And every time I found something different, uh, it reinvigorated my passion and my creative uh, flow and, you know, then AEW came around. It was a godsend for me. If there was no AEW, I probably would have been retired right now because I wouldn't have been able to, to handle the WWE system anymore. That's not a cut down. It's just a different world there. So um, now it's like I have no thoughts or, or, or anything about when will I stop because it's just so much fun and I'm enjoying it. And, you know, I think the match I had last week against Isaiah Cassidy and the promo we did after the MGF is as good as anything I've done in the last three or four years. And I'm my own biggest critic. So I was really happy with it. And as long as I'm happy and I feel that I'm not, uh, uh, um, 
you know, not kind of living down my legacy rather than adding to it. I'll continue to, 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 to be here. I'm just so impressed. I'm so inspired by all of the irons that you have in the fire with everything that you have going on, acting, wrestling, music, you have a cruise, you have a podcast, writing books, everything. How are you able to balance your time? Well, I mean, it's not as hard as you think. Um, Cause these things come in, 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 in chunks. And obviously my schedule is way easier now than it ever was in WWE. Um, you know, even uh, before the Corona and that we're only working once a week. And sometimes we work twice a week and then we get the next week off now because we tape a show here and there. Um, and then, you know, this, this year's just been the easiest year in the world because there's nowhere to go. I mean, you know, touring with Fozzie, you can't even think about that, but um, once we can tour again, I mean, th- that's the thing is that you, if you're doing something that you love to do, you, you pick your spots and the crews, I mean, there's chunks of work. There's, there's a bunch of work when you're putting it together. There's a bunch of work right before it happens. There's a bunch of work when it does happen. But, you know, we got moved from February to October, so there's really nothing more we can do. We've booked the lineup. We've got everybody in our contract. And now we've sold the thing out. So now you just sit back and wait. So it's and just like the book, like the, the, the new book, The Complete List of Jericho, look, my four previous books, you're spending hundreds of hours writing those things. This book wasn't as hard because I've been writing it for 30 years. So just slap some window dressing and put some cool pictures in it and make it, like I said, make it more of a, of a coffee table souvenir. So that didn't take a lot of time either. So there's always lots of projects, but like I said, if you have passion for it, you'll always find the time and the things that you don't have passion for, you keep pushing them off and then you just don't do them anyways and get rid of them. So I'm in a real cool position where everything I do is something that I believe in that I want to do. So it makes it much more easier to, to be involved with it. I've just, uh, it's, it is again, so inspiring. And I'm, I'm interested, you know, when you have a father like yours, when you have a famous father, does that kind of start to lay the foundation for you to go, he's accomplished this at the very best of the best. I can do the same. Well, I think if nothing else, it, uh, it, it gave me inspiration. It also gave, my dad gave me his blessing um, because he knew what it was like to, to go out and follow your dreams and, and make things happen. You know, he, he was, he basically walked out of high school to go play with the Boston Bruins when he got drafted at like 17 years old. So I never had any like, well, you better fall back on something or you better, you know, you better, you know, think of another plan. Like there really wasn't another plan for me. Um, and, and my dad knew that and he was supportive of it as a result because he knew what it was like. And, you know, even for my first match, if, if you, if you watch, if, if you do the watch along with us and talk as Jericho with Lance and I, you know, we weren't great, but we were still better than a lot of guys in Calgary at the time. And this was our first match. And that's not coming from an egotistical standpoint. It comes from the fact that we had the passion and the desire and we prepared. I mean, I started lifting weights when I was 15 to prepare for wrestling school. I showed up at about 195 pounds. I thought I was going to be, you know, the scrawniest guy. And meanwhile, I was one of the biggest because nobody, there's fat guys and skinny guys and guys were like, what are you thinking? You know, it's like when you go to a really bad strip club at 3am and it's like, girls, what did you like, you know, look in the mirror. Like, what are you thinking? And it was like that with some of these guys where you're like, you honestly don't think that this can translate. Cause to me, it's like, I wanted to be Hulk Hogan, you know, cause he's the biggest star. I want to be the biggest star. You know, I'm not the biggest guy in height, so I better have the most muscle I can and, you know, work on promos and work on characters. And I had all that down 
before my first day of wrestling school. And other people just came into it kind of like, wow. And I was like, how can you expect to make it? So I never had a backup plan. And my dad knew that. So he never kind of put any pressure on me to be like, you know, you're never going to make it, kid. Get over this fantasy. Um, and that helped a lot. So we, we came from the same place of this kindred spirit ship of, um, you know, putting everything on the line to make it in this seemingly unmakeable vocation. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say you're inspired by Hogan because I, I don't see any of Hogan in anything that you do. And I, I always tell people, when you told me that you were inspired by David Bowie, I'm like, that's yeah. that the best story you know, it's the best because he reinvented himself so many times and you've reinvented yourself more than any wrestler ever. Well, and the thing is the Hogan thing comes in with connecting with the crowd. Like I, I'm not six foot eight, 300 pounds. I don't, I don't have that style that Hogan has, but if you look at, at connecting with an audience and, and getting them involved, it's very much Hogan influence. Hogan's also one of the few guys that could, that's a great baby face and a great heel. You can't say that about Ric Flair. Ric Flair's not a great babyface. I worked him as a babyface. Flair is most comfortable as a heel. Hogan can be both and was great at both. And I think he's very underrated as a result of that. I think if you look at, at, at Chris Jericho, it's another guy. Eddie Guerrero could do it too. That could be a great uh, heel that everyone hates. And then on a dime, turn to a great babyface that everybody loves. It's a very rare thing. Uh, the, the Bowie thing it did not start out to be that way. Like when I started out, um, I wanted to be the best rock and roll front man, uh, but in a wrestling ring. Paul Stanley, Dave Lee Roth, Mick Jagger, Freddie Mercury, Bruce Dickinson. Those were the guys that, that I, I loved on stage, even as a singer Fozzie. But also, how did they connect with the audience and, and what did they do? Uh, once again, I could never be the biggest in stature, but I got the biggest charisma and personality. Where the Bowie influence came in is when I was in WWE, and I realized we're on TV every single week. And if you're on TV every single week for three, four, five years, you better change your shit up or it's going to be really boring. And if you look at those early days, I always had different facial hair, different hairstyles, and different tights, because I realized every one you do, they make an action figure of it. So... I had probably at this point 250 different action figures. That's no exaggeration because I always gave them something different to build upon. And then I also always had a theory that if you change from baby face to heel or vice versa, something has to change with you. So people know you're serious. Uh, going back to Kiss, taking off their makeup. They took off their makeup. You knew it was something different, something real. And that's why, you know, when I turned heel once again from, you know, lovable Y2J, who was way too stale in 2007 from, from some that started in 1999, the countdown was gone. The Y2J was gone. It changed from long tights to short tights. I wanted people to know there's something different about this guy. Mm -hmm. And once that kind of worked, then I changed it every single time. Heel, baby face, returning, coming back, going to New Japan, becoming the pain maker because it just felt right. Coming back to AEW, what am I going to wear? I got to change something. Let's champion. Let's do some, some glittery jackets and that sort of thing. So, um, and, and, and you think, well, where do you come up with these ideas? They just happen. Either, either they do or you don't. You can't sit there and think about it. You just got to do it. And, you know, if you do that and once again commit to what you're doing and be consistent with it, nine times out of ten, people will get into it and enjoy it as well. But you have to be 100% committed to it. Speaking of changing things up, was there ever talk of Fozzie being your entrance theme when you were in WWE, when you were changing things up? No, that didn't feel right to me because um, I had dabbled with changing my music a few times and Vince was always very against it. I even had, when I came back in 2007, I wanted to use, uh, it was 2007 or 
2010, maybe, where it was the, um, yeah, after 2010, where it was kind of like the end of the world as you know it, Jericho. Um, that's where Codebreaker can break the code. Can you break the code? Or something like that. Anyways, I wanted to use Avenged Sevenfold Nightmare. And Vince didn't want that. And so then I tried to get Zach Wild and Black Label Society to do a version. And they did. And Vince didn't like that. He said, your music is evergreen. And he's right. That If I'm in WWE, that's my music. But the moment I left WWE, it's like, A, I don't want to have to deal with trying to get the rights to break the walls down, nor do I, do I want to even use it. This has to be a different character. And if you look at the first time I used Judas in the Tokyo Dome uh, in 2018, one, I wanted something different. And two... I wanted something um, – uh, 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 we're trying to go to Japan with Fozzie. And I thought, well, if I can play the fucking Judas in the Tokyo Dome in front of 50,000 people, at least they'll start hearing this music and maybe somebody will bring us over here. They still haven't yet, which is another story altogether. But And when I heard that music, I'm, this is really – this is perfect. It's got the same kind of – like break the walls down. It's bow, 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 down. And this is like, a, a, you know, bow, bow, bow. It's the same kind of, you know, and, um, and it's mine. So I thought that was a really cool representation of something new, a new Jericho. And even though that first match with Kenny, there was still a scarf, a light up jacket and, and, and tights. It didn't feel right to me. And that's why when I continued on to, to work with Naito, I thought I need to change this a bit. And that's kind of where the, the pain maker idea came. Like what would a serial killer be if he was a wrestler, you know, some kind of a, of a, of a horror movie, villain like like Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers or what would that be and somebody had sent a picture of me as the Joker and I just liked the idea of the makeup and he was wearing kind of a a, uh, a fedora type of a thing and it just kind of morphed from that so all of these changes come from eternally thinking something's got to be different here Um, I don't know exactly what it is but it needs to change it needs to change right fucking now not next week not two weeks from now we need to do it now and now, 30 years in, you have one of the coolest entrances in wrestling with the crowd singing along. Mm. So what was yeah. it like when you started to realize, oh, my God, like they are singing along to this? Well, they kind of were singing and you didn't really notice. You kind of hear, but it really came to fruition on the cruise, you know, on, on, the, on the second cruise. One of the coolest feelings ever, Chris. I mean, here I am on my cruise coming to the ring with the, with the wrestling committee that I helped get on the map with – my song that everybody is singing, that's where it started. Uh, you know, unfortunately, whatever you want to say, you know, six weeks later, we had no more crowds in the arena, so it kind of got taken away. But I'll tell you what, the first week we had those 500 people in Daly's Place and they remembered and continued to sing it, it was like, thank God, this is great. They remember. The only thing is they used to sing the chorus twice. Now they only sing it once. So the tape shows, we always add the chorus. We double it to try and get people to remember that you're supposed to sing it twice. But singing it once is good for now, but you got to get, get back into it again. But once again, it was, it was, it was, and people would say like, oh, how can, as a heel, can you allow that to happen? I mean, it's organic. And that's what we, we try so hard in wrestling is to get an organic reaction. And when people were singing Judas by their own choice with no prodding from us, it was like, you got to let them do it. Heel, baby face, whatever it is, this goes beyond what side of the coin you're on. This goes to what everybody's, we're always trying to get, which is a reaction, an organic reaction. And, and we got that with the Judas sing-along. And thankfully we have it again now that this crowd's back in, in, in Jacksonville. You know, you want to talk about organic. I, I think nothing was more organic than a little bit of the bubbly, which is so amazing yeah. how that came together. 
What do you think would have happened if you if you somehow you know said that line in WWE? What would have happened versus what we did see happen in AEW? I don't know. It's hard to say because I don't want to say nothing because WWE, like once again, I worked there for twenty years and they have a way of doing things and it's it's awesome. You know, it really is. Uh, it's a great place to work. But I grew out of it. You know, I, I don't need to be coddled and be told what to do. Here's your like every every everything you've seen uh, basically. Since the beginning of the Cody angle, which was back in, I guess, mid-October, was written by me or written with, you know, Cody and Tony with me. This whole thing with, with, with Orange Cassidy, 14 weeks, that was all my stuff. Yeah, I send it in, get some suggestions, reconfigure a few things. But, I mean, all of it, Mimosa Mayhem, like, I don't think I ever would have been able to think of that there. But maybe I would have. But the point is, I'm on a roll now. And I know I've got collaborators that appreciate my vision and nobody fucks with it. That's the best thing. And WWE, they always have to go through the system of Vince and then whoever's in Vince's ear last, which might change his mind for something you just said earlier. And, you know, there's still a lot of snaky, snaky political machinations there. Uh, here at AW, I'm expected to do that. And I'm expected to come up with shit. I'm expected to give my opinions. I'm expected to... to, to, to do what I can to make the show better, knowing that everything I'm coming up with comes from that attitude. So a little bit of the bubbly, I don't know. They might've recut it or they would have given me some script that maybe Vince doesn't like that phrase or doesn't know what dumb and dumber is or doesn't care. And that was not a script. The idea was you come from the backstage, you go into this room, you take the champagne, you spray it all over uh, the, the backstage employee. Well, the problem was there was, fuck ups with sound and camera. I had to do that four or five times. I was getting pissed off. I was like, I don't like this. Like I'm a one take guy and doing it four or five times. My, my improv lines, which are hilarious. The first time you say them, when you say them three or four times, it becomes like, Oh my gosh, it's not even funny anymore. So we did it. This is the last one. When I finally got the dress, I was so excited that they, you know, I, I remember seeing the deli train to me, the big joke of that bit was the spinal tap joke. I mean, look at this deli train. Look at who's in there. Nobody. There's a little guy in there with the olive. And I thought I was just so entertaining myself. Then went, there's a little bit of the bubbly. No one even paid attention to the Spinal Tap Nigel Tufnell reference. They just went right to the bubbly. And somebody made a, a meme. I think the first one was a terrible song of Mambo Number no. 5. A little bit of the bubbly in my heart. A little bit of the bubbly in my And so they posted like a, a meme of that or a gif, whatever you call it, video on Twitter. And whenever I see that sort of stuff, I always jump on it and retweet and say, hey, this is great. If you make your own, send it in and maybe I'll retweet it. Suddenly, yeah. boom, 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 boom. We literally dozens, if not hundreds of those things. And once again, when I saw that, I, I called my manager. I said, we need to find a place to make some bubbly champagne uh, sat. And we were able to get, you know, through AW and, and through the connections that they had, get it made and get it up and running less than a month later, which is amazing when you think about it. And we sold 30,000 bottles of it to where people – are looking for it now and we're going to release a second edition um very very soon so we've created something from nothing and that's what wrestling's all about organically creating something that people get into there you go this is like show and tell with jericho i love I know, it right <laughs> you can tell i've been doing a lot of these uh these things so i wanted to have a background that had some story to it not just a you know a wall um, so yeah, all of those things are organic and you jump on it and you stick with it and you go with it. And, um, and, and fans appreciate that. They really do. They, they appreciate when you, when you have the creativity, 
Um, and I almost feel like I have a responsibility for people to live vicariously through me at this point and, and expecting me to come up with cool stuff that they'll be able to, to use in their lives and enjoy. Even though sports may have taken a little bit of a break in 2020, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, and you can pause your account at any time, and there's no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier. Like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire that you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. And right now, Indeed is offering listeners of our show a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. So go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. And the wait is over, my friends. We finally have football again. Now, you may not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure that you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off by wagering on wins, division, and championship futures. You can do it all day every day. So head to bet online today and take advantage of all the great signup bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code bluewire at betonline.ag. That's bluewire, all one word. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. So, you know, you're writing down every match that you've ever participated in. Do you have maybe a note section on your iPhone or something like that where you're writing down ideas that come to mind for lyrics, ideas that come to mind for promos, anything like that? No. Hmm. That's the thing. I don't. I'm not that type of guy. I, I, I plan for the moment. Like, you know, when we did the debate with Orange Cassidy um, and we were able to get Eric Bischoff to come in, I was like a little... I'd never seen a debate in wrestling. I did. I don't think I've ever really seen a debate at all. So I watched Hillary Clinton uh, versus versus Trump from 2016 and watched the debate and kind of saw how it worked and saw that the moderator was Lester Holt, uh, who played everything straight. And, and that's what I told Eric. I said, I sent him the clip. I said, this is what we're doing. And you're Lester Holt. He's like, do you don't want me to be in character? I said, no, I want you to be the straight man of the piece. He goes, got it. And he was fucking great. It was so great. And, you know, we'd never heard Orange Cassidy talk. So here's this asshole Jericho. I'm going to catch you in your own game and do a debate. And then, of course, he can talk. But he didn't know that. I didn't know that. We didn't know what we were going to discuss. Uh, Cody came up with the idea of doing some kind of a ridiculous scientific, you know, line, kind of the Wayne's World thing, Milwaukee. And uh, and that was basically it. And, and, and so we came up with it and, and 
wrote some stuff down that I Googled off of what climate change was, gave that to Orange. And his promo, we worked on it briefly, but there's no writing it down. What do you want to say? Here's what I think you should say. Let's do it. And we just kind of made it up literally three or four hours before the show. Came up with some questions to give Eric. Here's your questions. Um, and I had some retort, you know, I haven't liked you for 30 years. He's like, I know the feeling that was all him. Like, this is how we do it. It's just a bunch of talented people. You don't need a script. You don't need to, 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 to pour over it for hours and hours and hours. That doesn't make it better. That makes it worse. Mm. And, um, so yeah, I, my notebook, my notepad consists of, okay, I know what I'm doing from now until November 7th. That's great, but it's only a month away. Now I got to come up with what we're going to do from November 8th to the next pay-per-view. How many weeks is there? What's the storyline? Who's involved? What are the twists along the way? So that's kind of where, where I spend my time thinking and planning and booking, if you will. But when it comes to individual promos, I don't have time for that. I'm not that type of guy. I need to feel it. I need to be in the moment and feel what, what is going on today. How do we want to work on this today? Because if not, then I'm just writing scripts and I become a WWE writer. And that's not, that's not helping anybody. Yeah. Were you surprised when you saw, you know, after the pandemic started in March, were you surprised to see that the ratings went down? And I say this because before the pandemic on a Wednesday night at eight o'clock, you could be anywhere. You could be at your kid's soccer practice. You could be at the movies. You could be at dinner, whatever. After the pandemic started, I knew exactly where you were on a Wednesday night at eight o'clock. You were in your house. And I was just surprised to see that the ratings didn't go through the roof from there. I think the opposite, Chris. I'll tell you the reason why. People are used to seeing wrestling in front of a crowd. It's the same reason why hockey ratings are down, football ratings are down. Uh, It's just not the same without that audience there. And I was actually pretty impressed with how we were able to keep the ratings uh, from – like we we went down – a bit, but I bet you if you look, it's probably only 10, 15%, maybe 20%, maybe not even. And to be steady where we ended up, and once again, I'm making jokes about this, but, but the demo was real. And the demo really didn't go down. It went down a smidge, but not much. So I, I was actually, you know, bummed out at the beginning of the pandemic because we were on a roll. And we, we were, I remember thinking, if we could just make it to May 25th, which is Blood and Guts, the Prudential Center in Newark, where we had sold 15,000 tickets, That'd be great. And and I went to the ring on uh, March 11th, Salt Lake. And Rochester the following week was still on with the double debut of, of Brody Lee and Matt Hardy. 25th was still on with the with the blood and guts. And then in that 20-minute span of, of the match, I went to the ring. I came back from the ring. Rochester was canceled. Newark was canceled. The NBA was canceled. And Tom Hanks had corona. I'm like, what a fucking 20-minute span that was. Um, so... You know, and then we kind of we, we played out the string uh, in Jacksonville, and then, and then that got shut down. If you guys remember, we had to go to Atlanta, where we filmed four weeks of TV in one day, and that was where we really came together as a company. We had thirty percent of our roster available, and that's where the ratings actually went up from the previous weeks. And we we're like, "Holy shit!" So we got thirty percent of our roster in a warehouse, QT Marshall's wrestling school, in you know, freaking Canton, Georgia, or whatever it is, and we still did, you know, nine hundred thousand we got something cool here. And that's where I think we all kind of banded together as a team and went, listen, this is not futile. We can still keep this rolling and keep it going. And to see the ratings that we had unopposed, you can see those people are still there waiting for us. Uh, and it was a really, uh, it was, a, it was a cool gratifying um, uh, fact to, to, to see and to, to know. Yeah. People are definitely excited to be doing something that feels normal again. The fact that you guys have, 
even 10% of the crowd at Daly's Place. It feels like it's a step in the right direction. Oh, dude, it totally is. And let me tell you this, man. I mean, this is something to show just how pro everybody is. And it goes for, for, for WWE and NXT as well. I have been wrestling in front of thousands of people, thousands of people since I was 21, 22 years old. I mean, the early days on the Indies, you'd wrestle in front of 40 people here, 100 people there. But as soon as I started going to Mexico in 1992, there's thousands of people. And you might have a couple small crowds, but if you look basically from 92 up until 2020, I've never wrestled in front of less than, you know, a thousand people. And most of the time it's eight, 10,000. And AEW, I think our average is 5,000, 5,500. And they go from that to zero, literally zero in one week was very hard because then you got to go out there and actually work. And my first actual match wasn't for a few weeks after that. I think it was against Colt Cabana or something. But I remember, I remember the stadium stampede and the thing I did with Tyson with no people there. I was like, fuck, if there was people here, they'd be going through the roof right now. For both of those moments in the street fight that we had the week before, me and Sammy versus uh, Hardy and, and, and Kenny. And I was like, this is really strange. But guess what? You don't have a choice. Either you do it or, or you don't do the show. And, and we had no choice. We had to put out a show every week with our TV deal with TNT. They expected it. And that's why we continued rolling. So it was a hard uh, transition to make, but you have no choice. So you got to be a pro and pretend there's people there. And then we put the Rhodes Gallery of having at least 20 people or 30 people. And then we had friends and family and the staff at Morton's Steakhouse at the hotel where we stay and we're going every week. And then it started becoming the impact zone. And what I mean by that is you have the same 500 people there or 400 people there every week. And they start getting complacent because they've seen it all. And it's free. They're not, they're not invested. And right after that is when we started bringing in people. And that first week we had people. Uh, dude, it felt like Madison Square Garden. It felt like there was 20,000 people there because just to yeah. get a real reaction, people really singing Judas. And they're far away and it's scattered. Plus, it's open air, which the sound goes up more than down. But still, <clears throat> it means something. It means a lot. Um, it gives you a little bit of spark. And like I said, going from 5,000 to zero and then zero to 500 was just as the same as going from here to there. And from there to here was just like, hallelujah. It was so awesome. You've been doing a lot of fun stuff with MJF, and I'm I'm curious to know how much of yourself you see in MJF. Um, it's hard to say because he's way more advanced than I was at that age. I mean, you deal with a guy, I think he just turned 24 years old. He's definitely what you would call an old soul um, in that I can't believe how good he is uh, with the experience that he has. But what really blows my mind is how much better is he going to be with experience over the next couple of years and what he's going to learn from me and learn from Cody and learn from, you know, Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard and all these guys being in, in his, in his ear, Jake Roberts. Um, so it's amazing to me just, just how good he is. But I think, um, like I said, I mean, there, there's certain guys that you see that you're like, okay, we can do something together. And it's just the natural progression. If you look, I mean, there's certain, like, if you look all through the summer, once we did the stadium stampede, I did not want to be involved with the elite for a while because we've been doing that story since October 2nd, 2019, all the way up to May of 2020. Uh, Kenny and, and Hangman and, you know, the Bucks, we haven't interchanged at all in whatever that's been, six months now almost. That's why I did 14 weeks with Orange Cassidy. <clears throat> now who's next? Who can I work with that's next? Well, MJF and I have something natural there so that could be something that we could do but once again you got to sprinkle little things along the way 
And that's why even for this program, all along, I was going to do something with the private party and do something with originally going to be with Mark Quinn, but then I was really impressed with Isaiah and I wanted to see what he would do. He was great, which leads into the thing with Luther and Serpentico. That was always on the books, although I had it a few weeks earlier and Tony came up with the idea of doing it on the 7th because of the history with Luther and I. But everybody in our show gets a chance to get over. Yeah. That, that, that's the one thing. If you're, if you're under contract to AW, like Janelle and Sunny Kiss, we had two great matches with them because, listen, if you're on our show, you're not just sitting in the back. Either you're on the fucking dynamite when the time is right and you get over or you don't. Because if not, there's no reason to have people sign. That's something that's very different between us and WWE is we give everyone a shot, a legit shot. And if you if you do good, you'll continue to get more shots. So um, so I know that's a long way to answer the question, but I think MJF's the guy, every time he's gotten the ball, is delivered. And the sky's the limit for him, so it's the perfect time for us to, to start thinking about maybe possibly doing something together in the future. All right. Exciting to hear that. So... You came in on Dynamite, at least, with Inner Circle, and I'm I'm interested to hear what the backstory was between, first of all, coming up with the Inner Circle, but also the members within the Inner Circle. Well, Tony wanted me me to be a part of a faction, um, and I've never been a part of one before. I was a little bit reluctant at first, but then he was like, you know, Four Horsemen, you're Ric Flair. I was like, okay, well, let's give it a try. And I can't remember what his he wanted to be like a band, like Chris Jericho and the conspirators or whatever it would be. And I was like, nah, we, we got to, my idea was fist, like one, two, three, four, five and fist. It would be called fist. And that would be the, the merch. Uh, uh, and then I was, I was doing a BTE bit that uh, Matt and Nick asked me to do. And I said something about, you know, my inner circle is involved in this. And they're like, inner circle is a cool name. I was like, yeah, that's a really cool name. That, that could be it. Now it's funny too, because now we say it, it's like Fosley. You say it, you know it, but when you first say it, you're like that, that's weird. I remember people like Inner Circle, that's a terrible name. And now it's, like, it's a fucking great name, but you just got to live with it for a while. And the idea was at first, well, who's going to be in it? And I remember, I, uh, let me think about this. It was always going to be the idea of a tag team, an up and comer and a, a heater, so to speak. Right. So I think the, the original tag team, one of the ideas that was bandied around, and it might've even been by me, was Phoenix and Pentagon. And then I thought, I don't want gimmick guys, mask guys. And then Santana Ortiz came up and I was like, well, I know them from the cruise because they're on the first cruise, but I don't really know much about them. But, you know, the Bucks were saying, oh, good, they were on the first cone. I was like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's throw those guys in there. And then I wanted MJF, but I think Cody wanted to do stuff with him. So I said, well, how about Sammy Guevara? Because I scouted Sammy Guevara and brought him to the table. Never met him before in my life. I just watched him on an NWA pay-per-view that Cody was wrestling all this. And I saw him, I was like, this guy's good. And he's miscast the baby face. He just looks like an asshole. So Sammy, that's cool. And then for the heater, there's a guy called Anthony Agogo, who uh, is a boxer. And they were suggesting him. And I was like, I don't want that. Because I had that in WWE a couple times. They gave me heaters that were smaller than me or the same size. I want big guy. And I've been kickboxing training. Hadn't spoken to him in years, but I was kickboxing with the same trainer as Jake was. Uh, getting ready for his Bellator fights. And I just started talking to him. Like, are you interested in coming back? And he's like, I'd love to. And I pitched him to Tony. And uh, I said, this is the guy I want. I've always been a big fan of his. I wanted him to be my eater back in WWE, but they just miscast him. They didn't know what to, they didn't know what to do with a six foot six, good looking blonde guy who can work and, and has a character that, that can talk in the right circumstances. Like what the fuck? Like what, what, do you, what? Um, but that's fine. Uh, and, and so we got him involved 
And I remember the very first night when everyone came out, we, we did a photo shoot wearing inner circle shirts. And I was like, this is just, this reminds me of Guns N' Roses in 87. It's five guys that don't really belong together. If you look at that original picture, they look like they're in five different bands, but it just works. And that's the same to this day. When you get the five of us together, it just works. It looks cool. And I, I pride myself in the fact that in the whole year we've been together, we've never had any t- dissension, no teases of breaking up, no crosswords, and no reason to. If this was WWE, we've been broken up after three months, you know, and then that's not what we're going to do. There's no reason to fuck with it, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I love the inner circle. Now, can we add some people to it? Absolutely. Uh, that could always be part of the story and, and that will be a part of the story. But to me, it's like those five original guys. I like that. I still like it. And I think we really gelled and we've become really good friends after not even really knowing each other at all. I mean, it works. It's fantastic. You know, speaking of bands, if we were to go to a Fozzie concert, obviously Judas is your biggest hit. Is Judas played first or is Judas played last? Well, we always go from the from the uh, mindset that Iron Maiden and Metallica have is they always open with their new their, their new the first two songs for the new record. It's just something that they do, and we've always done that. So on our tour, the Judas tour, Judas Rise tour, Judas was on first, and the suggestion was to put on later. I'm like, no. This is, I want people to hear the song they know right off the bat and get hooked right away. Like, like I remember I saw ACDC open with Back in Black one year. And I saw Cheap Trick open with I Want You to Want Me. And like, holy shit, like, what else is going to happen? And, and then it, stuff happens. And then when that tour ended, you know, the cruise and a couple of the shows we've done, we opened with, with an older song called Sin and Bones and Judas is kind of the encore, which is pr- probably where it will lie from now on, which is where it should be. But for the rising tour, I wanted it to be first and foremost in your face, knock you the fuck out right away, and then and then leave people going like, holy shit, this is great. Because there's a lot of people that had never seen us before. So I wanted to hook them right off the bat. Do you have something you do every morning or every day that really sets your day for you? Because I feel like people who are as successful as you are have some sort of morning ritual that really helps them win the day. I mean, I've gone through, uh, I've really started training before I eat. Uh, and I'm up at 6.45 every day with my kids. Sometimes I'll go back to sleep. Sometimes I won't. Uh, sometimes if, if my kickboxing trainer is available, we'll train at 9 or 10 in the morning. Always a little bit harder. If not, I'll train on my own. Like as we speak now at 12.10, I haven't eaten anything yet. I've been up since 9. I'll go, I'll go work out after this. And then and then I find the earlier the, earlier the day that I work out, the better. But um, like when I'm on the road, I don't work out. I don't work out on, on TV days. I don't work out in Jacksonville. Um I just don't have, have any desire to do that. I feel that my mind is you know, in another place on those days. So um, there's really no, no morning morning ritual other than I just try not to eat for as long as I can, which makes me feel more invigorated for some reason. Um, maybe it's just in my head. I don't know. No, it's that fasting thing, right? I, I, yeah, I was really doing that a couple of years ago. And let's, let's be honest, like the Corona thing came out and everyone was drinking more not like it's just such a fucking weird year now it's like i want to start going back to this fasting and just keeping an open mind not drinking as much i'm a rock star dude i can drink till 6 a.m every day if i if i do so choose right i don't want to do that (laughs) yes exactly and the thing is too that that's the thing that just by going to jacksonville or, or we have a routine now i've never been a routine guy i mean i've been traveling around the world since i was 19 years old this is the longest i've ever been uh, situated in one place, 
being that I travel Jacksonville every week. I come back. I mean, I've been to LA a couple of times. I have to go to New York in a few weeks. But other than that, it's like basically here I am back and forth. So that's a little bit insanity inducing as well for me. But, um, you know, it's one of those things like if you were a drug addict and didn't do something, do drugs for six months, you'd, you'd be completely off it. And it's interesting to me from traveling. Like, I wonder if I'll ever be able to travel the way that I used to. Because now that I haven't been, I'm yeah. super spoiled. I live 30 minutes away from where I've been working for the last six months. Um, so it's it's kind of different now. It feels weird. Well, you're 30 years into this again. Congratulations. Thank what, you. what keeps you motivated? Oh, man, that's easy. Just to, to, to being creatively stimulated and continuing to build on this legacy that I have. You know, I, I don't believe my own hype, but I believe my own facts. And the facts are had I not gone to New Japan and worked that match with Kenny, I don't know if AW would exist because that's the match that Tony Khan convinced himself, like, we can do this because that match did big business. It did big business in the arena, added about another 12,000 tickets, and it added about 30% uh, subscriptions for New Japan World for the highest that it's ever been. And Tony was like, there is, there is people out there who want something different. Um, so that motivates me. Starting this company from scratch, going up against, you know, it's like Game of Thrones. I learned everything, uh, not everything. I learned so much of what I know from the king of the WWE. And now, you know, I'm the right hand to the king of AEW, giving him all the secrets that I learned in the kingdom of WWE. Uh, WWE's not going anywhere. They never will. But it sure is fun to, to mess with them, and it sure is fun to go up against them, and it sure is fun to compete with them um, and to have a great show that we've been putting on and to see our show build and to see our show continue to get better, to build stars in our company. So that motivates me and excites me. Um, this kind of uh, unsolicited uh, um, opportunity to do commentary kind of opened up a whole door there to where, you know, I'm not going to be wrestling forever, but I'll probably be involved until the day I die at this point, just doing commentary if I choose to. So all that stuff motivates me. It's exciting. It's exciting to be involved in the company that I, that I feel I made a difference in. WWE, you're not going to make a difference. You're, you, you, that's the monster. That's the machine. Guys come, guys go. AW, it made a big difference for me to be there. It was a big factor in, in, in getting it off the ground. In the first couple of months, that company was on my shoulders. Now it's it's on many people's shoulders. But it's still really cool to, to know that that you know I made a difference and, and changed the wrestling business uh, for the better, in my opinion. So that, that's all motivation. You definitely made the biggest difference because you know Cody and the Bucks and Kenny and, and you know Brandy were were making this thing. But then when Chris Jericho's name got attached to it, it's like oh. I know that guy and he's one of the best ever. He's going to be part of this thing. Oh yeah. And knowing that I'd never gone anywhere else. I'd never been in impact or never went to ring of honor or never left the company. When I left the company, I didn't wrestle. And that was my thing. I, I'm not going to wrestle anywhere, but for Vince McMahon uh, until I didn't. And that's where everything started changing for me. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, where it's really cool to be in this position to know that we have a really killer company that's got the cool factor to it. And we're really only just beginning, you know, you think, Oh, it's, it's been a year. How much further can they go? It's like, there's so many ideas and camaraderie and teamwork and people working together. And there really isn't any snaky snaky behind each other's back. And whenever there is a little bit of that, we stuff it, we, we kill it because we don't want that environment in our company. We've come from that, 
Uh, we've all dealt with that for years and we don't want that in AEW and we don't have that. So our boss is, is great. He's super passionate. He's very smart to the business. Um, he's not a money mark as people might've thought. He doesn't bow down easily. Uh, so I appreciate that. It's great to know who the boss is. And Tony Khan is the boss. He has the final say. And that's great to know. It's great for a guy like me to know because I need somebody to sign off on my stuff because sometimes I'm not sure if it's the best thing in the world or like Mimosa Man. Is this going to be total shit? Is this, is this, this is the, this, that's what I drew right there. <laughs> that's amazing. That, that was my thing right there. That's, I drew that about 20 okay minutes. Bubbly. Yeah. And I sent that to Tony Khan and I was just like, and he's like, that's awesome. I was like, thank you. So that's, that's how it works in our company. You know, if, if we like it, we do it. And if not, we come up with something else. And there's no heat, and no messing with each other and just it make everything cool. It's been an exciting 30 years. Obviously, I haven't been watching all 30 years of it. I was a little young when you started off, but it's been an amazing 30 years. And you know, again, congratulations. I'm so excited to see what's next for you because every week you're coming up with something new, something exciting. And it's amazing to be able to continue to watch you perform at the best, uh, you know, the top of your game. I appreciate that, Chris. And like I said, man, it's just been a lot of fun to see the growth of AEW and how many guys that are there that are going to be huge stars for years to come. And the fact that I have a little bit of influence and a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of, 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 uh, putting, putting some, some of that in there for them, whatever that word may be. Um, it's a pretty cool place to be. So 30 years in, it's hard to believe, can't believe it, but, uh, it's exciting to see what's going to happen, uh, over the next few years for sure. And uh, I'm glad I was able to share it with, uh, with everybody watching well, again, thank you so much, Jericho. Congratulations, Chris. Good job, man. Oh, well, thank you. All right. I just get so inspired every time I talk with Chris Jericho. You know, seeing what he's built both inside and outside of the ring is nothing short of incredible. I hope that there were a few nuggets in there that you were able to take away for yourself from this conversation. Actually, let me know. Snap a screenshot, tag me. I'm at Chris Van Vliet. Tag Jericho on Instagram. He is at Chris Jericho Fozzie. And I went back and I, I watched that wrestling match that he talked about with Shawn Michaels, that ladder match. And what he didn't mention here was that he broke two of his teeth during that match when he didn't get his hand up quick enough and Boom! The ladder just smashed him in the mouth. But the match was incredible. You, I mean, yeah, sure. He was bleeding from the mouth a little bit, but what a phenomenal match. And can you imagine how different the inner circle would be if MJF was in it? Or for that matter, how different MJF's time in AEW would be if he was part of the inner circle? Hmm. Although I like how things are now. I'm really liking what's going on with... Chris Jericho and MJF, very interested to see where this thing goes. And I think the one that the one thing that really stands out for me from this conversation, and the one thing that stands out for me for, from Chris Jericho's just career in general, is focus. He's always had such a clear focus on what he wanted to achieve. And maybe that was in wrestling, maybe that was in he's been an author, it maybe that's in music, whatever it's been. He's had so much incredible focus. And maybe the path to get there looked a little bit different, maybe, than he imagined, but he never lost sight of the thing or the things uh, that he wanted. As Mike Hawkins says, 
You don't get results by focusing on results. You get results by focusing on the actions that produce results. Be great. Be great for my friends. We'll see you on Thursday for a fascinating, insightful chat with Ariel Hawani.